from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Like Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we'll learn about the effort to build the first of its kind Moss Universal Park here in Milwaukee. Whether we're talking about intellectual and developmental disabilities to physical disabilities, that's what Universal is about. We're really thinking about everybody, all human experiences, and what people's needs are. We'll look at Milwaukee's housing market and how much has changed for today's home buyers. Say our parents talk about, well, gosh, back in the 70s, you know, I had an interest rate of 14%, but maybe the house cost $10,000, you know, so it's a different experience for them. Plus, we'll speak with a historic preservationist about the history of Cream City bricks and what they might be made of. I know that, that there are buildings in downtown where you can see the bones in the brick. All that's coming up on Like Effect, but first, here are today's headlines. This is Leg Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us. When some people go to a park, they can run, jump, and play around without a second thought. But for others, it's more complicated. Some paths aren't accessible for those with mobility devices. Some playgrounds don't accommodate visual or physical limitations. And many fields aren't built for wheelchair baseball. And if there are accessible components the rest of the spaces might not be enticing for people without disabilities. That's why Damian Bookman, executive director of the Ability Center, knew it was time for a change. He's spearheading the first-of-its-kind Moss Universal Park, an area in the works in Milwaukee where everyone can get exhausted from play, whether they have a disability or not. WUWN's Mayan Silver spoke with him to find out more. So one of the key principles of this project is that everyone should have access to play and recreation whenever they want it. How is this message personal to you? Well, it's a great question. So, you know, what makes this so personal for me is uh, actually I was uh, diagnosed with childhood cancer when I was 13 years old in my right leg and re-diagnosed in my left leg. So I've had 28 knee replacements and revisions since I was a kid. But more importantly, I'm a father of three boys and I want to be able to play with my boys regardless of where my ability or mobility is found and they want to play with me and I think that's our most important message is that we will build you know inclusive playgrounds for kids and I think that that's really great but every kid looks back to the adult who brought them mom dad grandma grandpa aunt uncle teachers hey look what I can do and it's you know much better much more fun much more interactive when I can get in that play instead of just looking at that play And the kids want to play with us, too. So making sure that that park, that playground works for everyone is what's most important to us. So for people who may or may not know, can you break down what makes a playground accessible? What makes a park accessible? That kind of thing. Yeah. So, you know, if we can if we can picture a playground, just about every playground sits inside of a park. Right. And we believe that that whole park should be an inclusive and universal experience, not just the playground alone, that people should be able to explore the outside of that space. I think one of the major issues with inclusive playgrounds is their their sense of adventure and their sense of danger and their sense of really wanting to be able to activate doesn't exist in many inclusive playgrounds, which what then that creates is just an opportunity for the able-bodied you know, siblings and peers to feel a little bored and ready to leave. And and let's be real, it probably gets boring pretty fast for kids with disabilities as well. So we've got to bring more activity, more adventure, more danger into the design. And then when we do that, that actually 
provides and creates inclusive play ultimately what we're looking for. If it's not an entertaining space to play, then those typically developing peers that come to play with their peers or siblings with disabilities, well, they're probably gone in 60 seconds or less. And they've already played on that element and that playground and that space, and they're no longer entertained and they're gone. So what we didn't create was that actual inclusion that we're looking for. We certainly created an accessible opportunities for kids and individuals with disabilities to play, but we didn't create inclusion if it's also not adventurous and dangerous and fun for the able-bodied kids. And so can you break down engineering-wise or structural-wise, what are some of the components that make a playground and a park having those elements? Yeah. Well, so from a playground perspective, you know, we've, we're helping create the first ever wheelchair shoot or wheelchair slide, if you will, that's never been done before. We've created something called inclusion tower. And we're talking about sensory needs to physical needs and challenges across the whole spectrum, right? Um, And this will get kids that can have the capacity to climb that up to 12 feet. You know, not every child with a physical impairment is um, wheelchair bound. A lot of times, you know, society likes to say somebody is wheelchair bound. The reality is, is that they are wheelchair users or they're a mobility device user. They don't need it at all times at, you know, of every second of every day. And so they can get out of that chair and climb something if they have that capacity. So that's what inclusion tower is. So imagine we're actually getting them 12 feet off the ground versus just four or eight, but also double wide ramps so that, you know, children who are wheelchair users are not in, you know, the way they feel welcome, wanted and comfortable when they're playing and that they can interact in a multitude of ways. But then also usually ramp structures have one way in and one way out. It's the same thing. It's the same experience every time that a child plays that comes that has that need. And and how much fun is that, right? When you think about a typically developing child or individuals, you know, we have ladders to climb or we have nets to climb or we have slides to climb. We have poles to climb. We have a lot of ways in and a lot of ways out of a structure. But a child who might be a wheelchair user has the same way in as the same way out. And my play experience never changes every time I come. So we have multiple way-ins, multiple way, ways out, um, not just the same experience in a structure, again, that brings that sense of adventure uh, and danger by getting people up to 8 and 12 feet high versus maybe 2 to 4 feet high. It's also been talked about that there will be a half-mile accessible path through the woods that include a challenge course. That's right. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so if we go beyond the playground, right, there's also a universal baseball field, something that's never been built before or designed before that will be able to include a multitude of sports, including wheelchair football and wheelchair basketball. But if we if we merge ourselves into the forestry, everybody knows that nature is good for our mental health. And we like to say everybody deserves to hug a tree. And those trees are fantastic in the Milwaukee County Parks. But if you can't get to the tree, does the tree really exist is the question. And so we have created a half a mile meandering path that will go through about the 12 acres of the wooded area, even a spot where we call sensory escape or mental health valley, where you can get surrounded by nature and be kind of in a cocoon or a pod and and escape from the visual activity, the, the auditory activity, the things that might just be too overwhelming. You can escape into that mental health valley. And so you can really get out into play pockets and fitness pockets and yes, an inclusive challenge course. So our partner game time has created and a challenge course, but we as the ability center and a partner help say, well, how is that challenge course inclusive? 
And so we created an inclusive model where I can race against my typically developing friend or able-bodied friend, and we can play together. And it has sensory spaces inside of that challenge course as well. Um, and so whether we're talking about intellectual and developmental disabilities to physical disabilities, that's what universal is about. We're really thinking about everybody, all human experiences and what people's needs are as individuals versus, you know, kind of a, a perceived collective whole. You're tuned into Lake Effect. I'm WEWM's Mayan Silver speaking with Damian Bookman of the Ability Center. So the park is on the west side of Milwaukee off of Wisconsin Avenue. Can you describe what's beneficial about the location of this park to serve people with disabilities? That's a really great question. I mean, we actually we chose the park specifically because of its equity for people with disabilities. So the location is less than a mile from the level one uh, trauma care center in the Milwaukee area. So Freighter Hospital, Children's Hospital, Medical College of Wisconsin, Ronald McDonald House. It's a block from the Milwaukee County Zoo. It's across the street from a significant elderly home known as St. Camillus and also Kitty Corner to Freighter's Rehab Hospital. It's on top of the zoo interchange. Uh, it is, you know, uh, pretty close to the border of Milwaukee County and Waukesha County. And then it's also makes it accessible to transit one, you know, van light systems, uh, van line systems for people uh, who get transportation needs, but also the heaviest traveled bus route in the entire system of the Milwaukee County Transit, which allows for less mountains, if you will, that people have to climb in order to get to their ultimate destination. So really from an accessibility and transport standpoint, um, this is the most accessible location from a Milwaukee County Park perspective that people can get to and are familiar with the area. So you've said you like opportunities for people with disabilities and people without disabilities, or rather people of all abilities, to play side by side and ideally together. Can you lay out some of your dreams of how this park will accomplish that? I mean, the dream for me, I think, is the dream for everybody. It's ultimately that inclusion piece, right? So I already spoke earlier about how a lot of times inclusive playgrounds are low element, lack adventure, lack danger, lack of desire to really want to play. And so did we really create inclusion or did we create an opportunity for kids with disabilities to play, which don't get me wrong, is extraordinarily important, but we didn't create that inclusion. And oftentimes when we talk about things like the universal baseball field, many times those are separate on their own, not surrounded by typical able-bodied athletic baseball fields, but these are right next to each other. And so it creates that opportunity where you can have, say, a high school baseball game going alongside a Miracle League baseball game. And people are co connecting together, seeing one another and seeing what their capabilities and their abilities really are. And that's what inclusion is. A community comes with people who are, you know, blind or visually impaired or deaf or hard of hearing or, you know, physically challenged or sensory issues or autism or Down syndrome or typically developing or neurotypical. I mean, it's all of the things, right? And that's what we're saying. That's what universal is. We're saying that from the fields to the forestry, from the playground to the fitness, from the bathroom, you know, and special care needs to temperature regulation, we don't want anybody to leave the park until they're exhausted, not because they have some kind of special care need. And that's what community inclusion looks like. And that's the lens we're using when we design these opportunities. And you hit it right on the head. It is all about opportunity. Is the opportunity equal? Is the opportunity accessible? Are the opportunities, right? I think that's key in the plurality of it. Are the opportunities available? And that's what we're trying to deliver. 
Gotcha. So, so the aim is for this to be open fall of 2024. People start coming in, hitting the hitting the park, playing, getting exhausted, yeah. wiping themselves out. <laughs> yeah. Um, have That's have it. you experienced any major, you know, successes along the way, but also limitations? Have you? What's been the limitation? Well, I would I would say that the major success was that we were able to mobilize the country's leader in playground and park building. Uh, to actually be a partner with the Ability Center and understand how they can do better and bring that sense of danger and adventure to all people. Uh, I think that that was a major win. I think the county parks, the Milwaukee County Parks willingness also to do better and want to be universally inclusive, I think that was a significant win. And I'll tell you, it was amazing to see the Milwaukee County Board of Supervisors approve this project 16 and 0, right? So they were all behind it, 100% understanding the need for something like this and excited that Wisconsin was going to be home to the first ever universal park in the country. I think those are all, you know, really significant major wins. I think the difficulty is getting people to understand what universal means, getting people to understand that I'm not, we're not talking about a playground. We're talking about a park and that key that every playground resides in a park and the park in its entirety should be inclusive. And then also thinking about Again, the able-bodied peers, the able-bodied siblings, the able-bodied people around the individual with a disability, it's a whole. It's a family, it's a community, it's a classroom, um, it's a whole, it's a group of friends and peers that wanna all play together and creating that experience where a sibling who's you know able-bodied or typically developing doesn't have to feel guilty when they leave the inclusive playground to explore the rest of the park. I think that's hard for people to vision and understand. So I think the difficulty is in getting people to understand the vision of why it's so important to invest in the entirety of the park and not just the playground alone. Are you going to have sort of like, I wouldn't say focus groups, but like as the park opens in in fall 2024 are you gonna be taking feedback from people as they're using the park like this needs to change we need to make this yeah. a little bit more accessible things like that I want to I want to say that we definitely had those focus groups and conversations before we even designed the park and got started with game time or the Milwaukee County Park System. Um, we definitely asked the community questions and got a lot of feedback from, you know, organizations like Vision Forward, you know, Marquette University and their therapy programs, Good Friend Inc. I mean, a multitude of people came to the table besides just the community to talk to us about their expertise. Um, but you did hit it right on the head, right? It is absolutely our goal that this universal park is a setting and a stage to bring systems change to parks across the country. And so we are going on a large scale. We will be what Game Time calls national designation sites. We will meet all of their national designation site um, necessary needs and check all the boxes and beyond. And so we will be a home where people can tell us continually how to do better. You know, it would be a dream come true if we were actually um, partnering with and conducting research with someone like the Medical College of Wisconsin or the OT and PT programs at Marquette University or UW-Milwaukee to really learn how we can all do better, what's working, what isn't, and what can be approved and improved and what needs to change. So we really almost want this to be a real life learning lab uh, where we can again create system change in parks across the country, not just right here in Wisconsin. Damian Bookman of the Ability Center, thanks so much for speaking to us about Moss Universal Park. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having us on and, and allowing us to share the vision and the dream and the passion and the need so that we can be a more inclusive community. 
Damian Bookman is the executive director of the Ability Center. He spoke with WUWM's Mayan Silver about the first of its kind Moss Universal Park. And you can find out more information about it at wuwm.com. Did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Just search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcast to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. Coming up later in the show, the founder of Great Lakes Distillery talks about how he got into making non-alcoholic botanical spirits. I think the big kicker was when the uh, pandemic started and having to close down half our business, uh, found myself with some time on my hands and decided to play around with the the whole concept of non-alcoholic spirits. But first, we'll learn how investors are affecting real estate here in Milwaukee and get some tips for prospective home buyers. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. You're listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Wisconsin recently topped a list of states where investors are interested in buying properties. And if you've tried to buy a home over the last few years, that probably doesn't surprise you. The market is saturated with people looking for homes, while the number of homes has failed to increase with this demand. Add in mounting inflation and this increase in companies buying up single-family homes for investors, and you have a market that Rob Staffsleen describes as the worst he's ever seen. Staffsleen is the director of single-family lending at WIDA, the Wisconsin Housing and Economic Development Authority, which helps people buy homes by teaching them how the process works and how to finance it. Staffsleen joins Lake Effect's Joy Powers to talk about what the housing market looks like here in Milwaukee. So as you look at the landscape right now for first-time homebuyers, how would you say things have changed in really the last decade, but in your time in this work? Sure. I have been doing this for almost 30 years. And as you say, the, the landscape has changed drastically when you think about you know, what a house costs. I think that's where you have to almost start the conversation where Say our parents talk about, well, gosh, back in the 70s, you know, I had an interest rate of 14%, but maybe the house cost $10,000, you know, so it's a different experience for them. And so now uh, we see uh, the increase just over the last 10 years, even, well, maybe even 15 years, because think about 2008 when we had, you know, the recession and we had plummeting house prices and, you know, subdivisions that were largely empty because the builders were struggling to sell them uh, in the market where people were literally foreclosures were uh, just such a common piece of the uh, landscape. And so now fast forward and there's no housing. I mean, it is literally such a different environment today for somebody to try to become a homeowner, not even for the first time home buyer, but definitely when you talk about the education process, when you talk about budget and you talk about, you know, maybe what somebody has to save up for a down payment and and now we have programs uh, that you can buy a house with no down payment. Uh, we have down payment assistance and uh, conventional loan that uh, we can we can loan at a high loan to value so people can become homeowners. But the reality is there's just no houses. It's a struggle. And so when you talk about what it looks like to be a homeowner today, somebody has to be very patient and maybe very flexible as they look at what they think their 
dream home would be or what their minimum expectations are, that might be quite a gap, but it's really difficult to, to buy a house these days. I, I can't tell you how many people I've spoken with where they're going, you know, we put in an offer for the house and there were 10, 12. Uh, in my situation, there was once, I believe, over 20 bids for a home I was looking at. And when you have these really ultra competitive environments, as you say, people have to really curtail their expectations. There's a variety of things that people are, are saying, well, I guess I'll maybe look at this neighborhood. I'll maybe look at this space. What are the kinds of frustrations that you're hearing from people who you work with? The most common is, is just what you spoke to, is the whole idea of they're up against 10, 15, sometimes into the 20s of people who are trying to buy the exact house that they want to buy. And to the point where you talk about people might say, you know, I'm not even really worried about so much what the house looks like. I want to be in this neighborhood. Uh, now, if they can be a little more flexible and they say, okay, I don't necessarily need to be in this neighborhood, but I have to have at least three bedrooms or I have to have at least two bathrooms or and then they might have to be more flexible just because of budget constraints in terms of where they live and have to move further away. That creates all sorts of different different issues as it relates to how long does it take them to get to work? Do they have remote work opportunities? Uh, you know, the transportation issues for people who might have one car in their household versus two cars. And I mean, there's all sorts of challenges for people who don't live close to work. As a, for instance, my daughter doesn't drive, so she has to think about how is she going to get to work and uh, whether it's Uber or public transportation. And I think uh, the challenges around not only, you know, the how you get to work, but then, you know, uh, these neighborhoods that are close to workplaces. These are all the, you know, I, I, I put down some talking points as it relates to the challenges around people trying to buy houses these days. And uh, it's, it's I've never seen it in the 30 years that I've been doing this, how many different hurdles there are for people to become homeowners. One of the things that we encountered personally with a home that we were looking at and that a lot of people have encountered is we weren't just bidding against other people. We were bidding against companies. There were companies that were looking at these single family homes. And uh, a recent report actually found Wisconsin is on top of the list of places where people are looking for investment properties. Have you seen this uh, in, in our market? We have. And it's definitely when you talk about the barriers to becoming a homeowner, not only are you going up against uh, your peers, but then investors who want to scoop up these houses and rent them out. They have a lot of capital to be able to accomplish this. And they can maybe buy those fixer-upper opportunities that, you know, back in the day, a first-time home buyer might buy a house at you know, doesn't have the best carpet or needs some paint or, uh, you know, windows or, you know, something that, you know, they could maybe either do inexpensively or uh, do themselves. But now these investors are scooping up these houses and not only a house, sometimes blocks of houses, you know, neighborhoods where they're uh, going in and trying to scoop up large uh, numbers of homes and then fixing them up and renting them out and maybe not even fixing them up that much. And so that is definitely something that we've seen. Now, on the other side of the coin, we have seen many people become homeowners. I mean, as a, for instance, just in the last two months, we have seen uh, many people become homeowners uh, here at WIDA. We've funded almost 500 loans just in July and August for almost $100 million just here in Wisconsin. 
So there are still people buying homes for sure uh, and becoming first-time home buyers. But uh, to your point, it is a challenge when you're up against not only your peers, but investors. When it comes to investors and these corporate interests, what does it mean for people, families, uh, when they're looking to buy a home? As you said, these are often well-funded groups. One of the things that also seems to become an issue is that they can waive things. Uh, so most of the time you're going to get your home inspected. You're going to get, um, you know, may- maybe you need to uh, do it on contingency. So you're buying this home, but you also need to sell your home. What are some of the benefits that a corporation has that the average person doesn't? You know, that, that's a great question. Off the top of my head, I would say the biggest thing they have going for them is the capital time where they can maybe move fast and uh, they have cash and they can get it wrong a little bit where, let's say my daughter was out shopping for a house and she wanted to think about it because it's a big decision. It's the biggest purchase that most people are going to make. And she's thinking about it. Well, she doesn't have time to think about it because other people are moving fast. They understand the market. They swoop in there. They put in a cash offer. They don't need an inspection to your point. They don't need an appraisal if they're paying cash. Where if it was my daughter, I would want her to have an inspection to make sure she's getting safe and stable housing to make sure that you know there's no issues with the foundation and it has a good roof and there's no hidden surprises. Well, in that scenario, somebody who's a large corporation and wants to just buy it they don't have to think about that as much. And so, you know, there's definitely uh, challenges for people when you think about what it even looked like maybe five years ago for people who could not only think about it, bring their parents to take a look at it with them, have it inspected, ask the sellers to make uh, some improvements to that home. If there's something cracking the foundation, roof that needs to be done, there used to be a lot more give and take in the, in the buying and selling process where now it's a seller's market. And very often there are no inspections and very often cash buyers do get preferential treatment. So it's definitely a challenge. Now, we'll, of course, get into how WIDA helps uh, first-time homebuyers, homebuyers in general. But before we talk about that, what is some of the advice you find yourself giving to people that you've tailored to the kind of unique market we're seeing right now? You know, so WIDA is a provider of home loans to lenders around Wisconsin. And so, I mean, ultimately, and this doesn't sound like uh, the best advice, but it's patience. It's being thoughtful about what a home is going to be to you, not only for your budget, but to the point you made about a neighborhood. How does it function in your everyday life? Because people can get a little skewed by, well, I found this amazing house. And sure, it's 40 minutes out of town, but uh, I don't mind the drive and and, and we'll, we'll we'll make it work. Well, then you find yourself in a position where, you know, somebody's caught in traffic. They spend two hours in their car. Um, there's the cost of, you know, gas in the car itself and parking. And um, so there's these sort of unintended consequences of trying to maybe be too flexible. And I feel like our lenders do a really nice job of uh, giving people good advice and coaching around what it means to be a homeowner, uh, the true costs of being a homeowner. Because a lot of people are renters who are going into becoming a homeowner. And uh, you have to go in eyes wide open in terms of what it really costs to be a homeowner. And um, uh, but patience, I mean, in this marketplace and I mean, as much as I talk about the investor piece being a challenge, it's almost always where a seller truly wants to sell their house to a person who's going to love their house. 
I mean, there's a lot of that. And maybe that's a Wisconsin Midwest sort of <laughs> mentality. But truly, I mean, I sold uh, my house two years ago. And these people took a picture of their kids underneath a trellis uh, of these uh, roses that we had. And they said, we hope this is our future home. And, you know, we had like 15 offers, but the picture of those kids under the trellis, when all things were pretty similar in terms of, you know, the sale price, <laughs> that did a lot for us. And if some corporation was giving us a little bit more money, that wouldn't have, you know, skewed our decision. Uh, so I think it still is a personal process. For sure. Those love letters can, uh, oh, man. can really... <laughs> <laughs> they get you. <laughs> uh, as you mentioned, WIDA does you know coaching with home buyers. What are some of the other ways that WIDA works with home buyers to uh, get them prepared to buy a home, but then yeah, ultimately get a house? So we uh, have a partnership with the Federal Home Loan Bank where we are financing some of the uh, local homebuyer counselors here in Wisconsin. There's there's nine of them that are actually participating. And so we, in conjunction with these housing counseling institutions, are you know, creating uh, more opportunity for people to get home buying counseling. And people start at such different places when they're talking about becoming homeowners. Um, there are some people who just think, oh, I could never be a homeowner. Nobody in my family has ever owned a home. We've always rented. And there's some people who they've thought about it their whole life and they've saved up money and they just haven't found just the right house. And, and they go into these counseling sessions really just to verify what they probably already know. And so we support those activities as well as, as I said, we go to, to lender events uh, as, a, as a WIDA uh, sponsor and we present different things around budgets, what it means to be a homeowner, sample uh, payments so that people have a sense of what it might look like when you're paying your taxes and your insurance and your principal and interest. And so I think the education part is really important so that people uh, are set up for success becoming homeowners. All right. Well, Rob, thank you so much for speaking with me today and sharing so much of your work. Well, it's my pleasure. Rob Staffsleen is the Director of Single Family Lending at WIDA, the Wisconsin Housing and Economic Development Authority. He spoke with Lake Effect's Joy Powers in September. Many of Milwaukee's historic buildings are made of milky yellow bricks, giving it the nickname Cream City. The masonry blocks are a sense of local pride for Milwaukeeans. But why? And how did they get here exactly? Lake Effect's expert Nunez speaks with historic preservation planner Andrew Stern about the history behind Milwaukee's famous bricks. As someone who moved here a little less than a month ago, I've heard Milwaukee be referred to as Cream City. How did the city get this nickname? So the Cream City name um, developed because of the multitude of cream brick buildings that were found throughout the city of Milwaukee um, and southeastern Wisconsin in the 19th century. The, the brick-making industry was very large here, and we had some very prominent um, businessmen, George and his brother John Burnham, and they had brickyards on the south side of the Menominee River Valley that produced millions and millions of bricks. They really started kicking it into high gear in the 1850s, and then their business lasted in the valley um, through the rest of the 19th century. Their children ended up um, becoming brickmakers too. But the, the brick that was produced there, as opposed to a, a red brick, was a soft cream yellow color. So when brick buildings were constructed, they used their local brick. And just the multitude of buildings that were going up were cream colored. And Milwaukee developed the nickname of Cream City based on the, the number of brick buildings that we had here. 
So that kind of leads me into my question of why did the city rely on using these like soft cream colored bricks for its buildings and not the average red brick? Because of the clay that is found in the Menominee River Valley and and along Lake Michigan, the clay found here is higher in magnesium and calcium. And when that burns, it dilutes the effect of the red iron that's found in the clay. So the clay is fired very hot and it produces a cream-colored brick. And in the 19th century, before the railroads were here, it just would have been really unfeasible to ship bricks Um, So that was our local product, and we embraced it, we loved it, and it really brought a lot of attention and renown to Milwaukee and helped us develop this identity. People would come and visit and then write home about this beautiful yellow city, and uh, it really kind of helped put Milwaukee on the map as the city was developing. That's really interesting. And so does its history primarily have ties to Milwaukee, or do other cities in Wisconsin and beyond have a history of its own using these bricks too? Yeah, so Milwaukee had the largest industry um, that produced the Cream City bricks, but we also shipped millions and millions of these bricks first to the East Coast, and then later with the development of the transcontinental railroads. A lot of Western cities would use the Milwaukee brick as a facing brick. And there's evidence of a number of the bricks being sent to Chicago following the Great Fire down there. The cream uh, Milwaukee brick was used for a number of lighthouses along Lake Michigan on the Michigan side. It was used for a city hall in Utica, New York. Um, And there's also a, a funny story Um, from one of the newspapers um, describing how the editor of the Albany Journal kept a single Milwaukee cream city brick on his desk for people to come and look at. And and the newspaper article was speculating that there would be orders of Milwaukee brick to Albany before long after people see what a fine product it was. You mentioned what the brick is made of. Is it still used today to build structures? No. By about the end of the 1920s, a number of factors helped kind of end cream brick production in the city of Milwaukee. Architectural trends had really changed by about the turn of the century. A lot of structures were starting to use marble and stone more prominently. Also, it was easier to get red brick shipped via railroad here. So a lot of red pressed brick was showing up in the city. Also, a number of the clay deposits were just exhausted by about the turn of the century, and the demand wasn't there for it as much anymore. Fast forward to today, where can these cream-colored buildings be found throughout the city? Yeah, they they are still around, obviously not in in the numbers that they once were. Um, It's amazing if you look at photographs of downtown from the 1870s and 1880s, like almost every building you see is a brick building. Um, So unfortunately, the city doesn't quite have that number of structures anymore, but there are some great locations to check out. I would say Walker's Point is a great area where there are a a number of large commercial and residential structures that are constructed of of cream brick. And there's some really nice warehouse buildings down there that were constructed of cream city brick. Closer to downtown, the brewery districts, um, Schlitz Park and then the Pabst um, Brewery Complex, a large number, if not all of their um, buildings that were originally part of the um, part of the brewery complexes were constructed of cream city brick. But the cream city brick is kind of known for picking up environmental damage that could be in the form of algae growth. But definitely with the number of coal-fired power production and, and just method of heating homes from the 19th century, you know, through into the 20th century, um, if it hasn't been cleaned, those cream city bricks pick up a lot of the dirt and grime. And it's interesting to see a dichotomy of like recently cleaned nice shiny cream city brick buildings or or some that haven't you know maybe been touched ever and cleaned ever um old saint mary's church downtown on on broadway is a great example of a building that hasn't been cleaned and it really wears its 
Cream City Brick uh, grittiness pretty well. But then there are a number of buildings, especially over at the Pabst Brewery Complex, that have recently been cleaned and look pretty shiny and, and almost as if they were put up within the last couple of years. Interesting. Um, I guess this is a question of curiosity. Is it difficult to clean cream brick? Um, it, it can be. You always want to use the lightest, most gentle means possible when you're cleaning a product like that. And you certainly don't want to blast it or sandblast it or anything like that. That'll take the hard protective shell off of the brick, which can expose it to the inside. Then it'll erode a lot more quickly. So you'd want to use water to start with and then maybe some detergents. They, they have specific masonry cleaning products that can kind of over time, over applications, sort of wash away some of the dirt and grime. Gotcha. And so I know that the Milwaukee Preservation Alliance and the American Institute of Architects Milwaukee held the Cream City Brick Symposium last month. Why is it important for this part of the city's history to be recognized? Oh, I think it's utterly important that it's recognized. I mean, like I said, Cream City Brick really put Milwaukee on the map. It was sort of our badge of honor for a lot of the 19th century. um, And it's important to celebrate that and work towards preserving those that are still here so that future generations can can take a look and be like, wow, that building's been here for 150 years and it was part of our historic fabric and just celebrate the architectural history and the industrial history of the city of Milwaukee. Are there any current efforts to preserve cream-colored buildings throughout Milwaukee? Not, not a citywide effort. Um, in order to have any sort of historic protection, a building would need to be locally designated at the city level. So just being placed on the National Register of Historic Places doesn't offer a protection against demolition. But if a building or buildings are locally designated, then anytime demolition would be proposed, it would need to go to the Historic Preservation Commission for review and discussion. But there isn't like a citywide ordinance that would protect every Cream City brick building in the city. Although, I don't know, it doesn't sound like a horrible idea to me, but I think politically it might be a little bit difficult. But yeah, it would be on the commercial building owner or the private uh, residential owner to be responsible for taking care of their cream brick buildings. Understood. And so um, in addition to working in historic preservation, I know you're the author of um, Cream City, the brick that made Milwaukee famous. What made you want to study the city's history with the cream bricks? Well, I grew up around here and I always admired and appreciated the architecture and, and the cream brick buildings. And my family has a farmhouse that's been in our family since the 1850s. And the actual house was constructed probably about 1870 and it's a cream brick house and I always loved it. Um, and then when I got to graduate school, and it came time to figure out what to write my thesis on, I was like, well, Cream City Brick is really cool. Uh, and as I started to do research about it, I found that there there wasn't a ton of literature about Cream City Brick. There, were, there was a, a great essay that architectural historian and architect H. Russell Zimmerman had done in about 1970. And then there was another master's thesis from a gentleman from the University of Chicago that primarily looked at technical specific side of Cream City Brick. But I was like, wow, it's you know one of my favorite things and it's about Milwaukee and I love Milwaukee. Um, so I was really enthusiastic to, to sort of go forward with it. What's something interesting that Milwaukeeans might not know about its history with the cream bricks? Okay, so this is, it's kind of a weird story. I don't think it's like too morbid or anything, but apparently um, on the south side of the Menominee River Valley, there was an old city cemetery. It was a pioneer cemetery. And um, at some point, I believe in the 1860s, all, and I'll put that in air quotes, all of the bodies were moved to Forest Home Cemetery. And the Burnham brothers, John Burnham, acquired the property to use for brick production. Well, it turns out that not all of the bodies were moved. 
and uh, there are articles in the in the local papers of oh uh, workers at the Burnham brickyard discovered uh, another another bunch of bodies in in the brickyard and you know they're removing the the larger bones that they can get out of there but uh, the smaller ones they're just grinding up to use as brick and and another article a, a couple of years later that was like oh yeah they're, they're they're finding more more bones in the in the old cemetery and it quoted uh it quoted an architect being like, yeah, I, I know that, that there are buildings in downtown where you can see the bones in the brick. Oh, my gosh. I know. <laughs> I'm like, for people who are not like seeing me, my mouth was like, what? Um, that's crazy. I guess it gives a different meaning to, to bricks being the backbone of the city of Milwaukee. It oh might, actually, might actually be the backbones. <laughs> wow. Um, this is, yeah, that was definitely very interesting. I'm not sure a lot of people know that, but... Yeah. <laughs> It's a pretty weird story. So I guess next time if you're if you're in front of a Cream City brick building, it might not be a large chunk of lime that's sticking out of the brick or it, it might be, I don't know. <laughs> we could speculate. We could speculate. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for your time, Andrew. I really appreciated this conversation. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Andrew Stern is a senior planner of historic preservation for the city of Milwaukee. He spoke with Lake Effects expert Nunez. You can also find a bubbler talk all about Milwaukee's Cream City Bricks at wuwm.com. We want to hear your story ideas for Lake Effect. If you have an idea for an interview or conversation you'd like to hear on the air, give our community connection line a call. That number is 414-251-8970. You can also submit your ideas at wuwm.com slash lakeeffect. We'll take one more break, and then Great Lakes Distillery founder Guy Rehorse joins us to talk about how he developed non-alcoholic botanical spirits. You're listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Guy Rehorse founded Great Lakes Distillery in 2004 and began distillery operations in 2006, becoming the first drink distiller in Wisconsin since Prohibition. But he's also in the non-alcoholic beverages scene with Juniper, a botanical spirit, the first from his company Boundless Beverages. Juniper was modeled after Rehorse Gin, but it has a bit of a different flavor profile made from juniper, ginseng, orange zest, chili peppers, and more, without the alcohol, but still maintaining a one-to-one supplement ratio. To find out more about the beverage, Guy Rehorse joins me now. He begins by explaining what's changed with the non-alcoholic market within the last few years. It's been realized, I guess, by the producers that people's tastes are to the point where they don't want to go into a bar and have a kitty cocktail or uh, just a Sprite. There are people who, frankly, a lot of them, uh, a lot of customers are people who were drinkers and enjoy a cocktail uh, and they enjoy it for the taste, not just the uh, alcohol side effects, but uh, they really wanted to, uh, I think, step up what they were drinking and a few creative bartenders started, I think, improving what they were offering. And before you know it, a few companies uh, such as us picked up on that and realized, huh, maybe there's a, a market for something like this. So what inspired you to take the step of creating boundless beverages? Well, I think the big kicker was uh, when the, the uh, pandemic started and 
having to close down half our business, uh, found myself with some time on my hands and decided to uh, to play around with the, the whole concept of non-alcoholic spirits and give it a shot trying to create my own. So can you explain to me kind of the learning curve that was involved? Because the NA spirits, it's mostly water-based. I imagine it's a much different process than distilling alcohol. So what were some of the biggest challenges you had to take on in learning how to make a quality product without the alcohol? Right. Uh, well, you hit the nail on the head because uh, using uh, water as a base for the spirit is extremely different and uh, requires, you know, kind of changing your perceptions about how you're going to produce the product if you've been distilling for a long time. Uh, there is uh, distilling involved in producing a non-alcoholic beverage. Uh, some of the uh, botanicals are still in, extracted with alcohol, but then the alcohol is removed from those extractions. But in the end, it all gets mixed into water. And some things work, some botanicals work well doing that, and some not so much. So we definitely, you know, tried a lot of different things. And we think finally settled with this product on, on uh, some good flavors. Is that why you chose gin first is because of just how it worked out well or did gin is one of your signature spirits, obviously, but um, was it just a process of trial and error that led you to gin as a first product to make because it worked the best? Yeah. So originally my goal was to try and recreate our gin exactly, but with a water base. Um, I decided after a while, kind of took a little turn away from that and uh, decided that I wanted to make the spirit a little more, um, little more useful, not just be gin-like. So we tweaked some flavors in it. Uh, it's got many of the same botanicals that our gin does, but we definitely did a little tweaking on the recipe and came up with something that uh, frankly is a little more flexible than just a gin would be. Um, for example, uh, one of the recipes that I was really astounded by was uh, just doing a, a old fashioned with it and uh, worked incredibly well. And, and that kind of, to me was the test of, okay, does it work in other uh, non-traditional cocktails? And it did, it worked wonderfully. So very pleased with that, of course. This also has a one-to-one -one replacement ratio. Is that something that's hard to accomplish in any beverages or in, in making these spirits? Uh, it seems to be because, frankly, a lot of the spirits, uh, and I basically tried everyone I could get my hands on uh, before we developed our final product. But one of the problems that I realized with most of them is that they were either very weak in flavor or, frankly, didn't match the flavor of what they were trying to copy. So, and I say that because, for example, we're not calling this juniper non alcoholic gin, we're calling it juniper botanical spirit. There are a lot of products out there that are calling their products a, a non-alcohol whiskey, non-alcohol gin, non-alcohol tequila. And uh, they just didn't seem to, uh, in some cases, even be in the ballpark of what a customer would expect that to taste like. So it was, uh, you know, kind of a uh, revealing, number one, trying all of those, but also trying them in cocktails. Uh, like I said, many times they were weak. And instead of using an ounce and a half, which you might normally do with a gin, you had to use like three ounces just to get, you know, a similar gin profile. So that was very, very much the case that we, we wanted that to uh, be used like a regular spirit. In making this product, what are some of the things that you have to do when making a non-alcoholic 
spirits, whether it comes to production, bottling, certain protocols to follow, what are we now thinking about as consumers when it comes to guaranteeing that this does not contain any alcohol? Right. Well, that was a uh, interesting experience because what I realized is that you know, because it doesn't have alcohol, you have to be concerned about microbiology. You have to worry about things like salmonella. You have to worry about shelf stability. There's, you know, many, many things uh, that, uh, frankly, regulations from the FDA that you need to be aware of. As a distillery, as an alcohol distillery, the FDA pretty much leaves us alone because they know we can't hurt anybody (laughs) with uh, microbiology when our alcohol percentage is, you know, 40% in a bottle. So, when you're making something that doesn't have that alcohol protecting it, uh, it's a whole nother world. And um, for that reason, uh, we actually produce it with a co-packer. Uh, we've developed the recipe here. Like I said, did two years of experiments, you know, to get to this point. But when it came down to the final recipe, we sent it out to a co-packer to do because they're set up for that sort of thing. And they, they have the uh, uh, FDA uh, approvals. They have the facility is set up in a proper way. Um, I'm not sure we'll ever actually be able to do it here at the distillery just because of those regulations and uh, how tight they are. When you think of a brewery or a distillery, you know, you got to remember there's fermentation going on. So there's wild yeast just, you know, heavily floating in the air in a facility like this. And uh, while it doesn't harm alcoholic beverages, certainly in the distilling case, when you're trying to produce a non-alcohol food product in that, you could definitely pick up some problems. I made a a gin and tonic with the juniper last night, and I was pleasantly surprised by the similar bite you get, like when you have gin or alcohol. How did you create that flavor and sensation? Yeah, that's uh, that's where the uh, pepper extract comes in. So it gives you that that little bit of burn that you know that you're used to, and that frankly uh, helps make a, a good cocktail in many instances. So we have uh, uh, again, like I said, there's several natural ingredients that are in there that you know we don't necessarily disclose that also help along with that. Yeah, it certainly creates a really nice profile that's really, really close to a traditional gin and tonic. For you as a distiller, what's been the best part about creating something like Juniper? Uh, just, uh, again, the, the learning curve, I guess. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, it's kind of neat. I mean, we've been making award-winning distilled spirits uh, with alcohol for many, many years. And uh, to start playing around with this, it was just a totally different ballgame. And uh, we had to learn a lot of things, and, uh, and we did. And it was, frankly, a lot of fun to, to come up with. Guy, thank you so much for joining me to talk about Juniper. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Guy Rehorse is the founder of Great Lakes Distillery and Boundless Beverages. He spoke with me in January of 2022, and you can find out more about Juniper Botanical Spirit, as well as a list of other non-alcoholic drink recommendations to try at wuwm.com. And that's Lake Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. If you've missed any of today's conversations or you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, simply download our podcast. Just search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll explore what's still growing in Alice's garden and how it's being prepared for winter. That's tomorrow at noon on Lake Effect, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.